We're in John's Gospel again this morning, going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to continue this awesome conversation, this fascinating conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. This morning will be in verses 19 through 21. But before we start looking in detail at the text, I want to tell you about something that happened to me in elementary school. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't remember a whole lot about elementary school. It kind of all blends together, right? Spent so many days there, but it's all somewhat of a blur. However, there is one day for me that stands out that I remember really well. I don't know what grade I was in, probably third or fourth grade. We had a substitute teacher. And by the middle of the day, we had decided that we didn't like this substitute teacher very much. We went to the cafeteria for lunch, and a number of us talked about how we could make the rest of the day better than the morning had been. I think we were about nine or ten years old, and we hatched this plan. We were going to race back to the classroom, beat the substitute teacher back there. Some of us were going to hide in the coat closet. We had these big coat closets. Some of us would hide in the coat closets, and then the heaviest kids among us would hang on the bar that was like a handle for the door. So they would hang on and and not let the substitute teacher back in the classroom. What a brilliant strategy, right? Hatched by a bunch of nine and ten-year-olds. What could go wrong? Well, we implemented this strategy. We did rush back to the room. I put myself in the back of the closet, like as far and as deep into that coat closet as I could go. Then a bunch of other kids got in there, and some of the others hung on the door handle. And for like 20 seconds, it worked, because the substitute teacher was not able to get that door open. And i got to tell you, um, I was a good kid. I got good grades. I always got good marks on my report card. My, by the way, my mom is not here this morning, but I'm pretty sure they're watching from home online. She is probably mortified right now. So say a little prayer for my mom. She does not know this story, but I assure you it is true, and you're learning it just like she's learning it for the first time. At any rate, I was a good kid, and she would vouch for this. I would get good marks and good comments about how well-behaved I was and so on. So here we are, back in this situation. I'm hiding in the closet with some other little criminals. And the substitute teacher can't get in. And then I hear this voice saying, let me in. It was not the principal. It was Mrs. Robotile, who was one of my previous teachers. One of my most admired teachers. I loved her, and she loved me. I was one of her star students. Well, like me, all the other kids in there shook with terror as she made her way into the room and began scolding everyone. She had these really penetrating eyes, scolding everyone, and I am shaking in the closet. And then she says, whoever's in the closet, come out. So one by one, kids come out of the closet, and I'm like the last one to walk out into the light. And she looks at me, Jeffrey Pierce. I am so disappointed in you. And my soul shriveled up inside of me. I will never forget that experience. That was, that was the, uh, that's what they call the come to Jesus talk. You ever heard about that? It's like, 
hey, it's, it's time for a truth bomb. It's like the light is shining and now I'm exposed. May have been good on the outside, but I was no better than any of my friends there in school. And I was that day, in a very memorable way, brought into the light. Have you ever been outed? You ever had an experience like that where you're kind of caught red-handed? Something happened and you just know uh, you could squirm, you could try it, but it's like you're just busted. You had that happen? Probably all of you have had that happen, unless you're really, really good. But at some point, it'll happen to you, kids. There's some younger ones in here today. At some point, it'll happen. That, that light will be shining. Well, well, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is about Jesus as the light. And there's some things that are similar with regard to the story I just told you in terms of exposure. There's some things that are similar, and there's some things that are a little different about it. And we're going to talk about those things. We're going to make you think this morning as we look at this passage. Let me do this before we look at these verses in chapter 3. You stay there. Let me just remind you, as we've studied the Gospel of John, we've seen already that Jesus is the light with a capital L. It comes up right away in chapter 1. It says in verse 4 and 5, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or it could be translated, did not overcome it. Verse 9 says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So we've been talking about Jesus as the light shining, conveying to this fallen, dark, dead world the light and life and truth of God. Jesus comes as the embodiment of all these amazing attributes of our Creator to shine to illuminate this world, to illuminate the human heart, to, to shine on us collectively as a, as a globe, all of the world, and to shine on us individually as a person. As you sit here this morning, you are a very complex person. Your husband is very complex, right, wives? And you two are complex, and your kids are complex. Created by a good God, made in His image, given gifts and abilities and life experiences, but also fallenness and sin and deception and darkness. This combination of all those things. Well, Jesus comes as the light to shine, to expose, to reveal things about God and about us. And what's counterintuitive about this, as we're back in chapter 3 now, is we're going to see that there is actually there is safety and truthfulness of coming into the light. It is the safest place. It is the place of healing. And and, and counterintuitively, it is dangerous and deceiving to hide in the dark. It is dangerous to us. And God loves us so much that He comes for us as the light. And so let's read the passage. Dave read it for us earlier. Let's read again these Three verses it says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. 
As I said, this is the continuation of this conversation between Nicodemus and, and Jesus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. This is really interesting because as a Pharisee, he was a religious leader. He knew his Bible really well. This was a man who had dedicated his life to God and the things of God. And God in the flesh, God the Son, is standing right in front of him, conversing with him, probing, teaching him things, and actually communicating to this man, well, you have a lot of knowledge, but you've missed something very important. Like, you've missed the whole point. And that's what Pastor Rob has been teaching about earlier in John chapter 3 when Jesus has talked to Nicodemus about the reality of the Spirit and how the Spirit is sovereign and the Spirit is the one who gives the new birth, who makes people alive. In a sense, he kind of takes it right out of the hands of Nicodemus, Nicodemus and says, hey, this is in the hands of God. Only God can bring people to spiritual life. And Nicodemus, despite all his learning, had missed that. He also described for Nicodemus, and we were in last week, the well-known passage that includes John 3.16. Is there any more famous verse in all the Bible than John 3.16? You see it at football games. You see it on billboards. You see it all over the place. God so loved the world. And so something about the depth and the scope of God's love Nicodemus has missed. In all his study of the Bible, his Old Testament, the first part of it, in all of his study of the Bible, he had missed the love of God. And so Jesus says to him, hey, God sent his son, God sent me into the world that those who believe might have eternal life. And he gave the example, remember, he gave the example of Moses and the lifting up of the bronze serpent saying, this is how you're saved. You're saved by looking up, by looking at God. He is the source of life and love, and truth, and righteousness, and your soul is saved by Him, not looking at yourself. You see, that's what the Pharisees had come to believe. That's the natural view of Scripture. That's the natural view that we ourselves also can fall into that trap of coming to this book, endeavoring to do what it says in order to somehow rescue ourselves, to somehow take control of our lives, to somehow secure ourselves, to somehow control other people, to somehow save ourselves in some way. And Jesus was telling Nicodemus, it is about looking up. It is about looking to God. It is about believing in Christ. It is about believing in me, Jesus says. That's where life comes from. So he is, and this is a remarkable part of this as well. I mean, he is essentially telling someone who's an expert in his field, hey, you don't really know what you're talking about. In the most loving way, speaking the truth in love, he's saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And this is, are you a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you don't know these things? Remember he said that to him? And, and, and can we admit, in our humanness, just for a moment, can we admit, if, if, you, if you kind of view yourself as an expert in some area, maybe, maybe you're an engineer or a builder of some kind or a craftsman of some kind or a, a person in finance or accounting or, or maybe you're a baker and you know your way around the kitchen. If someone comes and challenges the very foundation of your knowledge, if, if a lot of people look to you as an expert and admire you, but then someone comes along and questions that and challenges that, naturally speaking, how, how do you experience that? Is that a welcome type thing? Not usually so there's an exposure even in that sense where, where Jesus is just brilliantly shining as God who knows everything. <laughs> who created all things, who is behind the revelation that is, 
that is recorded in this book from cover to cover. And he says, Nicodemus, I have some things to teach you. And then, then after talking about the new birth and the sovereignty and the role, the integral, the integral role of the Spirit in new birth and salvation and, and the idea of looking up and believing in Christ for eternal life and being rescued by Him. In verse 19, he says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. So start with that first idea there. This is the judgment, and we think of judgment, and appropriately so, we think of the final judgment, or we think of maybe in, in, in our law courts, we think of the judge and the verdict coming down. We think of it in that sense, but there's a, there's a broader sense of this. It just has to do with, like, really the word has to do with deciding, like distinguishing one thing here, one thing there. And he's saying, hey, th- there's this judgment. When, when Christ came, even though it said in the pre- prior verses that he did not come to judge the world, it's saying, well, but when he's here, there's a certain judgment that takes place. There's a division that takes place. There are those who are in the light, who welcome the light, and those who are in the darkness. He says, the light has come into the world. And ever since the light has come into the world, things have been different. There's been this polarization God has been shining His light really from the beginning. We know Adam and Eve, in their rebellion, they hid from God and they didn't go looking for Him, but He went looking for them, didn't He? And asking them probing questions. Shining light. And all throughout the Old Testament, God is in pursuit of His people. And then you get to the Gospels and as we're seeing, Jesus is certainly the pursuit of God coming for His people through Christ, coming as the light. The the light has come into the world. And here we are thousands of years later, and it still matters that the light has come into the world, doesn't it? And that distinction, that clarification, that judgment is still occurring, revealing us as either in the darkness or in the light. So let's just talk about the darkness first, because that's what Jesus talks about first. That's what the text talks about first. What's he say about it? He says, light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. Notice this contrast. Look back at verse 16. For God so loved what? The world. God loved the world and everybody in it. What do men love in verse 19? By contrast, darkness. Men love darkness. I mean, think about God's love for us. One way to define love, of course, the Bible says so much about it, so this is just summary, this is a little oversimplified, but one way to think about it is, let's put it in human terms for a moment, wanting the best for another person. Wanting what's good for them. Well, we would all agree, God, as our loving Creator and Father, wants the best for us, doesn't He? He loves us. He loves the world As a whole, he loves us individually. But it says, naturally speaking, what men love, and that includes all of us, naturally speaking, we love the darkness. As I said earlier, when we think about stories like that story I told about elementary school, I mean, that's not usually a welcome, this kind of idea of being exposed and having your, the nakedness of your soul exposed, that's not a welcomed concept usually, and it doesn't feel safe and it doesn't feel warm, it feels scary. 
The reality is the real danger to us is not in the light, it's in the darkness, isn't it? The darkness is the real danger to us because we are the greatest danger to ourselves in our own fallen mindset, aren't we? That mind of the flesh, that mind that minimizes the value of God, that distrusts God, that mind that is plagued by anxiety and fear and anger and competition and hostility and judgment and everything else. All the things that tangle us up, that make us these complex people who are broken. It says we love the darkness. Continue looking to ourselves, trusting in ourselves. By nature we are against God our Creator and against ourselves and against others. But there is this reality of a God who is for us. That's what the text points us to here. This magnifies God and His love for all, including you and me today. And the darkness is where we hide and do our thing to our own destruction, and the light is where God does His thing, where His truth and healing occur. Go on with me. He says, love the darkness rather than the light. And then he continues to explain for, why? For their, for their deeds were evil. And depending on what translation you have, what Bible version you have, it may say their works were evil. It is the word works in the original. It's, um, this word works, really, from the beginning of the Bible on, it has to do with, when, it, when it's speaking of people, it has to do with what people generate, okay? What we accomplish, what we do. It can be even used of people's vocation, their profession. Well, he says, their works were evil. Meaning contrary to God and the things of God and the way of God and what God would deem good. He elaborates, for everyone who does evil, in verse 20, hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Same idea, some different terms here. When he says everyone who does evil, it's the idea of practicing things which are worthless, base, preoccupation with this world and the stuff of this world and all of the brokenness and destruction that we experience as a result of that deception in our minds He says, everyone who does evil hates the light. So we could say everyone who practices the base. It it harkens to mind uh, Romans 1 where it says, men worship the creation over the creator. The elementary things, the physical things, making more of such things than God himself. And, And that's our natural inclination. And it amounts to hating the light. And fearing that these works will be exposed. Now, we could, we could from this conclude, well, yeah, this is, this is Jesus confronting the obvious forms of unrighteous works, obvious evil works. But remember who he's talking to. Who is he endeavoring to reach right now? He's talking to a Pharisee, isn't he? He's talking to an upstanding citizen, outwardly a man of integrity. And he's saying to him, hey, these things that come from you, it fits perfectly with the idea of looking up 
Related to the bronze serpent and how that foreshadows Jesus who will be lifted up and we look to Him and are saved. It, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the opposite of that. It's looking within. It's looking to myself. It's my efforts, my works. So even if they're good on the outside, He's basically saying they're worthless. They're worthless. Remember in Isaiah it says, all of our righteous deeds are as what? Filthy rags. And we think of that, and you may know, if you've studied your Bible, if you've heard this taught, you may know that that term has been used of, of menstrual cloths for women. That, that term can be, and, and so we hear that and we think, ooh, gross, that's what that means, gross. But, but there's a deeper level to that. Because menstruation says that something has not occurred. When menstruation occurs, what has not occurred? Life has not occurred. The Bible is telling us a thousand different ways that nothing of value, nothing of life can come from me independently. Nothing of value can come from me and my works. Nothing of value can come from me and my piety, my external behavior, my conformity to whatever rituals or routines or rules that we people come up with. Nothing of value comes from us. Does that make you feel a little bit small? Or less than small? And that's why there's this natural fear of accepting that. Like we can't, remember the old movie, uh, Is It a Few Good Men? You can't handle the truth. The, the light of Jesus is correlated throughout the New Testament with life. We saw that in chapter 1. With truth, with truth omnisciently known perfectly known truth and with perfect righteousness or we could say rightness. Light is associated with all these things and what he's exposing here is our utter and desperate need for him. For anything of value. Naturally speaking, there's a little fear of that. What, I mean, if I come into the light, what happens if I admit, if I accept that? What, what will be exposed about me? The insecurity, the ego, the greed, the way we exploit people and mistreat people and overlook people and want our own way. Boy, it's humiliating to, to have to accept and agree That's the case, naturally speaking. There are works of the obviously unrighteous kind and the seemingly righteous kind. I say seemingly righteous kind. There are irreligious ways of hiding and working for our own salvation and there are religious ways of hiding and working for our own salvation. And and Jesus exposes both, all of them. So we've talked about this judgment, this distinction, this decision. There's, there's, there's darkness, and there's those who reject the light and stay in darkness. And then, thankfully, there's this invitation to come to the light, and there's this reality of walking in the light. And, and we see it in verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. He who practices the truth, literally, he who does the truth, which sounds weird. <laughs> he who does the truth, he who practices the truth, 
He who sees, hears truth and, and moves toward it. And says, I want, I want that. I need that. I need truth. Comes to the light. Comes to this exposure. Accepts this reality that just don't, I just don't have it. Don't have life. Don't have truth in of myself. I'm deceived. There's lots of things I, I don't see clearly. Darkened. I'm a danger to myself and others. Can dress that up on the outside, but the reality of it is still perilous within, and the people closest to me know it. But then there's this invitation to the light, to practice the truth, to accept things as they are, beginning with God, and all that He reveals to be true. This is so that His deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. See, here's, here's the difference. Is, is, again, it's the word works. It's, it's literally that his works may be worked in God. That his works may be, I should say, may be manifested as, as having been worked in God. Meaning, and I think in Dave, when you read it earlier, I think in your translation it was worked by God. It's this idea that, it's this acknowledgement that it's all from him. It's all of him. And he said earlier to Nicodemus, hey, the Spirit does this. He's like the wind. He moves where he wishes. He's going to do what he's going to do. And it's like, wait a second. So you, you mean I don't have control over this? No. But the good news is God does, and he's committed to doing what he's going to do. In fact, it says in Ephesians that we have been foreordained for good works that God has determined that we would walk in. He's already got it covered. And he says here that these will be manifested as having been wrought in God. All of him. And that's such good news. And it has huge implications for the coming to Jesus and walking with Jesus. So let me say a little bit about this. In terms of coming to Jesus, and you, you, think, of, you think of the gospel stories, and we're going to be seeing these in John, and of course they're all throughout the four gospels. But you know, you got the, the lepers and the disabled people and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and these people come to Jesus with their tangled mess of a life, don't they? And he has mercy on them. And they come and just acknowledge it. It's kind of like they've, they've been, they were me as a nine or ten year old coming out like, uh, okay, here I am. Like I got, they couldn't clean that up. It was just what it was. And they experienced the warmth of Jesus' light and forgiveness and mercy and even protection. We won't turn here, but in John chapter 8, the familiar story, the woman caught in adultery, the scribes and the Pharisees are there. And remember, their, their uh, question they put to Jesus, well, what are you going to do? The law says we should stone her. And, and he says, well, whoever is without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And then one by one, they're like, uh, okay, I guess. And they just sort of walk away. And, and, and Jesus, as the light, right there, in fact, right at the end of that story, if you look it up, it's in verse 12 or 13, right at the end, he declares himself to be the light. And so how did she experience light in that story? She experienced light as safe and comforting and merciful and forgiving and even protective. And how did the scribes and Pharisees experience the light in that story? As threatening? Scary? They walked away. 
And here we have, this is just amazing. Here we have Nicodemus. How awesome is God that he can say he saves everyone of every kind that he ordains to save in his way, in his time. And here's Nicodemus, and it says, it says he came to Jesus. I don't think this is incidental in the beginning of chapter 3, because it says it again later in chapter 19, Nicodemus comes up, and it says that he came at night. It makes a point to mention that here and later in chapter 19. Like he came somewhat secretly. And the reason I bring it up is because I'm pretty sure, and even if you look at John 19 and where it says that of Nicodemus, there's some evidence in the text there that pretty sure what was going on was he came at night because he was scared of what his other religious people would think. Because there was this culture of works and scorekeeping and measurements. And he was intrigued and drawn to Jesus and to the light, but he wasn't quite ready to fully come out yet for fear of what would happen if he did. But it's an awesome thing as you follow the trajectory of his story throughout John, you see a man who, who I believe we will be with in glory someday. Because it, looks, it appears as though he came to Christ. In fact, he was tending to and taking care of Jesus' body after Jesus died. As Pastor Rob has emphasized, God saves Pharisees and prostitutes, thankfully. But it's good for us to consider this idea of, of conversion itself as coming to the light. We can conceive it in a lot of different ways. And there's, especially as I, as I was growing up in my experience in the early days of church, it was kind of, you know, pray this prayer sort of thing. And there's different ways to conceive of it. And it certainly is a simplicity in terms of believing. But, but the question of like, what are we believing? Well, this metaphor of light is, in, is inviting us to believe that Jesus is life and Jesus is truth and Jesus is righteousness. And there's none of that in me. And so I come to him and I'm rescued by him and he gets all the credit And I get to enjoy that status as a child of the light forever, all by grace. And that's conversion. And then we think, okay, so now, you know, when it comes to walking with Jesus, walking in the Christian life, what does that that look like? And I I ask you to consider what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, where he says, Even as you received the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. And that word even as in the original can be rendered in the same way or how you received him. It speaks to the manner in which you received him. In that same manner, walk with him. And and how do we receive him? We received him saying, I got nothing. I don't have light. I don't have life. I don't have truth. I don't have righteousness. I've got nothing. He says, walk in the same manner. There's times in which, and I want to be careful how I say this, I don't mean to say there isn't something to consider in terms of how we live. Absolutely there is and how we treat people. New Testament addresses that all throughout in the imperatives, okay? But the context and the atmosphere of it would tell us, the main point of it, the main thrust of it, as we see here, would tell us living the Christian life is not about getting it right. It's about walking in the light. It's about knowing the one who always did and always does and the one who is the only hope for any works that are going to be of any value coming from me. Because apart from Christ, you can do how much, according to John 15? Nothing. It's about walking in the light. 
being amazed by His righteousness, trusting in Him, knowing that He's everything that we need. And as we bump into those sinful, broken, destructive parts of ourselves, instead of pointing the finger and deflecting and hiding, allowing God to probe and ask us those deep questions. Just like he asked Adam and Eve, just like he asked Cain, just all throughout the Bible where God is coming to his people and like the onion layers just peeling beneath to say, what is it that really has your heart? What is it that you really value? Because every outburst of anger and irritation and anxiety and whatever, it all comes from that deep-rooted place. And so God graciously just says through just shining light, just saying, come, come into the light. What's, what's this really about? He just reveals, and growth is becoming more and more aware of those things that we value, those things that are put in the place of God and more and more aware of and amazed by His rescue. And that does something in terms of fellowship. And this last thing I want to do is if you'll turn with me to 1 John, okay? Turn over to 1 John, same author, who really developed this theology of light extremely well and thoroughly and clearly, simply. And, uh, and before I read this, let me, let me tell you something I, I heard about Years ago, I was reading a book about um, these different dynamics of, of how humans think, and they told a story in the book about a bunch of um, a bunch of executives getting together for this seminar. A bunch of big wigs, really, you know, executives, very important people, right? So a bunch of important people who take themselves very seriously got together for the seminar on trying to become better executives, better leaders in the corporate realm. And this facilitator had this crazy idea. I'm going to have these executives all polished in their nice expensive suits. I'm going to have them break up into separate little groups. And in their groups, they're going to talk about their greatest failures. And when they cost their companies like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars or other things they did that are just enormous, huge failures. And when, what they found was when they did that, what was a very uptight and sterile, and fake, and arrogant environment became humble, and joyful, and they could even hear laughter among these executives as they talked with one another, as they let their guard down, and actually learned from one another better with the guard down in the truth than they, than they were previously when they were just all faking it and trying to show off how great they all were. Is that interesting? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Okay, First John. To start in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. I remember years ago studying this passage and thinking, now wait, what does is, what is this idea of walking in the light have to do with fellowship and what does that have to do with the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin? Walking in the light, fellowship, Cleansing from sin. 
What I believe John is getting at is this. He's not talking about walking in the light in terms of some external morality. If that's the point John was endeavoring to make, or if that's the point that Jesus was endeavoring to make, it never would have ruffled the feathers of the Pharisees, would it? Because they were doing that. By outward estimations, they were doing that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the light of God's perfection and exposure which exposes every time we are seeing the character of God, though we are created in God's image and created good, we are fallen. And so when we see his brilliant character displayed, we see, wow, I'm not like that. We see his selflessness and the contrast of our selfishness, right? His continual, consistent desire and ability to put the good of his people in front of himself. You see that in Jesus, don't you? In his sacrifice. And you see, wow, look at how selfish I often am with my kids, with my neighbors, with people on the road, with whatever. So we see that contrast, right? Well, what this is saying is to walk in the light is to be honest about it, is to be truthful. Have you ever, have you ever been in a conversation? I shouldn't even ask, like, I shouldn't even pose this as a question. Remember when you were in a conversation, probably recently, when you could tell that person was not being honest with you? Do you remember that? Probably happened recently. Something they were saying or not saying, the look on their face, their posture, something like, yeah, they're not really being honest with me. And, and you may even have had this suspicion, they weren't even being honest with themselves. And if you thought really carefully, if you're really neurotic and introspective and analytical like myself, you might have thought they, they probably don't even realize that they're not aware of the truth. <laughs> well, it's easy to kind of look at others and say, well, that's, well, so we all do that, right? We all have all sorts of ways of hiding. Behind fake smiles and exaggerated accomplishments and victim narratives we tell of our lives. Well, if this wouldn't happen to me, I would have been more than I am now. And the victim narrative stuff. And I mean, we, we all hide. This is talking about just the truth. The way it really is. And he says, when you walk in the light, as he is in the light, that's where true fellowship happens. In the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. I mean, to walk with another person who you know has been forgiven and cleansed by God, even as they're confessing to you their struggles and their irritation and their anger or their failures or whatever, and you know this, this brother, this sister is also a recipient of God's grace and is fully forgiven, as am I. And now we can talk and maybe even have a conversation that we never would have had if we couldn't rest in that covering. I mean, this is, this is a complete paradigm shifter when it comes to how we even understand fellowship. And he says it's, it's truthful because to say that we don't sin is, is to lie. And sometimes we're lying so well to ourselves we don't even realize it. So we need him. Jesus came to Nicodemus and spoke truth and manifested himself as light and he does the same for us today. And I don't know, hopefully some of the things we've talked about have caused you to think and maybe even some of those onion layers of, of your mind and your life experience and your struggles right now, hopefully some of that light has touched where you're at right now. And hopefully, like those who found Jesus' light to be comforting and warm and life-giving, 
Uh, hopefully that's the case for you. I'm going I'm to close with these words. We played the song for my girls on the way in. Hopefully you get these a little better than my girls did because we played the song and we said, hey, did you catch the message of the song? And they butchered the lyrics completely. I said, well, Dad, we couldn't. The music was loud over it. We couldn't hear. So hopefully without the actual music playing, if you just hear the words, hopefully you can get them. We did have a good conversation about these words. It's a song that goes back to the early 2000s, I think. The band was uh, Casting Crowns, Christian Christian band. Some of you probably have heard songs by them before. They have a lot of good ones. The song's called The Stained Glass Masquerade, which for uh, the young people in here, because my daughter's like, well, I don't know if we know what that is. So it's like a costume party, okay? Masquerade, right, for the young ones in here. Anyone not heard of a masquerade? Can you, anyone willing to? Yeah, after our, yeah, forget it. I'm not going to ask you to do that. <laughs> All right. Just listen to the words and I'll close in prayer. Is there anyone that fails? Is there anyone that falls? Am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I take a look around, everybody seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I play the part again. So everyone will see me the way I see them. Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples? My daughters thought that was shiny plastic seagulls. (laughs) Steeples. Church reference, get it? With walls around our weakness and smiles to hide our pain. But if the invitation's open to every heart that has been broken, maybe then we close the curtain on our stained glass masquerade. Is there anyone who's been there? Are there any hands who raise? Am I the only one who's traded in the altar for a stage? The performance is convincing, and we know every line by heart, and when, only, and when no one is watching, can we really fall apart? Or would it set me free if I dared to let you see the truth behind the person that you imagine me to be? And this is my favorite part. Or would your arms be open? Or would you walk away? Or would the love of Jesus be enough to make you stay? Let's pray. Father, it's our desire, I know as, as leaders here at Cornerstone, it's our desire that we would grow in our understanding of you as the light, in our amazement for who you are, and what you're like, and what you've done for us through Christ that we would see more and more clearly. And along with that, that we would have growing, ongoing fellowship, that we would walk in the light together, that we would encourage one another, that we would confess our sin to one another, even as it says in James, that we would confess our sin to one another, that we might be healed, we might experience in relationship the cleansing that we have in Christ, secured for us by His blood, It's our desire that that would be happening here and we know it's been happening and you've been at work and you will continue to be at work and so we trust in you for it. 
Help us to accept the truth of John 3. To experience the light of Jesus as both penetrating and exposing and also warm and safe and comforting and healing. And God, we confess to you, even in this moment, we don't even fully understand all the complexities of why we get ourselves in the messes we get ourselves in. Or why we're so uptight or so anxious or so irritable sometimes. But you do, and you love us, and you've forgiven us. You know that begins with our rebellion against you, and yet you love us anyway. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were against you, you were for us. God, help us to believe with greater and greater depth just how much you love us and are for us. And that the fruit of that would be seen in our relationships with one another, with people in our community, that we would know that all the good that comes from and through our lives, and there is fruit, and we thank you for it, and we know that all of it comes from you. It's all been wrought in you because you're our God, and we can't exist without you, and we can't live spiritually without you, and we can't bear fruit without you. So humble us, level us, help us when we look at one another, when we look at another person struggling with their sin, help us to see ourselves in them. And to remember your love, to to love as we've been loved by you. All of this occurring in the light. Thank you for your Apostle John and what you taught him in person and through your revelation. And what you used him to pen for us today. And thank you for everyone who's here. And pray that this truth would encourage in, in an ongoing way in their lives. And we thank you. And praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.